I think we should just abandon any hope that I'm going to get that right. <laughs> like, just, that's just how I roll. Love me for who I am. Well, hey, everybody. My name is Stephen. Uh, it's good to see you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. I get to uh, lead the staff and the session of this place called All Souls. And for the last several months, the session and uh, with input from the staff, we've been involved in this congregational discernment process, visioning, uh, seeking with the Holy Spirit what story God is telling in and through this community called All Souls over the next season of of our life together. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking over some aspects of what we will refer to as the vision frame. It looks like this. And uh, it's kind of a, a tool, really, to help us look out and give common language for our life together. I'm going to say a little bit more about that toward the end. But if you've been here for a while and you're like thinking, wait a minute, a vision series vision frame, the, the language sounds kind of corporate-y, you know, this isn't Tesla, we're church, I, I get it, uh, trust me, I, I get it, you know, you're asking, do we need any of that? Um, suspend your inner cynic for just a minute, because let me just actually tell you the inside scoop on this, I actually don't care if we have a mission statement. What I care about is that we participate in the mission of God. I don't care if we have these things written on our website, written on our worship guide, on the side of our building. I care deeply, though, that we have them in our hearts, that they are a part of the passion that draws us into the mystery of the kingdom. I and mean, for all that to happen, we need clarity. And so that's why we're going over this for the next few weeks. Jesus' whole ministry, his, his preaching, his teaching, the miracles that he performed, his discipleship of the 12, they were all about orienting people to what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And so when we talk about vision, ultimately what we're talking about is uh, asking the kinds of questions that help us clarify who we are in this cultural moment so that we can align ourselves to the reality of the kingdom and what it looks like for us to walk faithfully in step with the kingdom. And so as a, a kind of way of kicking that off on a 30,000-foot view level, we, we are going to focus in on an image that we kept coming back to. And then I'm going to draw you really briefly to an overview of what we're going to focus on for the next little while as we look at those questions of what it means to love and serve our community well in all of its beauty and its brokenness and all of the beauty and brokenness inside of us and participate in the reality of things looking here as they do in heaven. And this image that we kept coming back to was that of a tree with strong roots. What does it mean to be rooted in Christ, rooted in a community, in a people, in a place, in these relationships here, in this uh, community known as All Souls? So with those questions kind of in mind, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got a mobile device, a worship guide, to Psalm 1 as Jen comes forward to read for us. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, 
or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, that you would plant your word deep in us, allow it to take root there. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I grew up not too far away from the groves of sequoia trees in central California, and I remember as a kid just staring up in this sense of awe and wonder at these massive, massive trees. It was a fun thing a few years back to get to experience that with my kids again, and if you've ever stared up at those trees, they, they stretch about 280 feet in the air. And it's just to look up at them is just to be just completely ravished by beauty. A few years later, uh, after college, I would work at a summer camp just outside of Yosemite. And this particular camp had a grove of sequoia trees on its property. And being surrounded by these trees, you can't help but pick up a few things about them. And I learned that the root system of these giant sequoias was unique. They only grow on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains where the soil is less compact. But because there is uh, you know, bedrock underneath them, they don't actually have the ability to send roots down deep. They stay centered and they stay strong because the roots are robustly linked with all of the other sequoia trees. Catherine showed a wedding photo of Jonathan last week, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show a uh, photo of uh, our wedding here. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a good thing that I'm really small in that picture. That's the downside of getting married in Yosemite. The <laughs> photographer's like, the scenery's cool, y'all are, y'all are great. Um, it's a good thing I'm small, though, because uh, I can't explain why I'm wearing a zoot suit other than to say... But that was a thing in the West Coast in the early 2000s. You just have to trust me on that. But I'm showing the photo so you can get a sense of the root system that hold up these massive trees. They only go four to six feet under the ground, but they extend outward up to 100 feet. And then each tree then links its roots with the roots of all the other sequoia trees. And the wider system of this root structure provides the stability that they need to flourish. So that when the wind blows, when the snowfall comes, when the, the storms come, they are literally holding each other up by the roots. You cannot find a lone sequoia tree. They only exist in a grove. They cannot survive in isolation. Which is to say that they live in a kind of community. 
we got married in Yosemite and we wanted a picture by the roots of that tree because it was a reminder to us that we weren't alone in our marriage and that if we were going to be shaped for a life together, we were going to need strong roots. In his book, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, Pastor Rich Velotis says that those who are apprentices to Jesus also need to have a strong root system if they are going to flourish. And he writes this, that a deeply formed life is marked by integration, intersection, intertwining and interweaving, holding together multiple layers of spiritual formation best held together in community where we are surrounded by different people who powerfully bear witness to an area of formation in which we might not be so strong. If we're going to practice this way of Jesus together out in the world, we need strong roots to hold us in place, connected to the source of life, and we need to link up with others who are connected to that source of life as well. That's the central image of Psalm 1. It's about how to live life. It starts out as a beatitude. Blessed are those, some translations say, happy are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And law there is kind of a shorthand for the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. Blessed are those who find their life in that story, in this people, in this community who are tied to scripture, tied to a tradition. And the idea of being rooted this way kind of cuts across the grain of our culture. We are told that we can be whatever we want. We are unencumbered by the roots of a shared story, a shared people, shared practices. You're a blank slate. Who you will be is up to you. I mean, that is basically the summation of every college graduation speech. Uh, I had uh, Brian Dyer, who is a professor over at Emory, say, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much like that. And the, the image in contrast to a rooted tree is that of a tumbleweed just kind of blowing through. Your life, the path to freedom is less like being planted and more like an open road. So dig up anything that holds you in place. That's the cultural narrative. But the problem with that is it doesn't tell us what to choose or how to choose. And, and the promise is that if you dig up your roots of your story, your tradition, your people, your discovery, well, you're just going to know who you are and what you want. But ironically, if you pull up your roots, you can't know who you are because your roots tell your story. And then we're left on our own to construct the life. And the way that we do that, we are told, is by making choices. Don't like your life? Choose another. Don't like your major? Choose a different one. What about your career, your friend group? You don't like what your church, your tradition says about, you know, you fill in the blank. Choose another. Don't like where you live? Get a different house. Don't like your spouse? Find one better suited to you. The promise is that the good life is just the next choice away, that the next choice that you make is the one that will put you finally on that path to being happy. But after a while, the years go by and you realize you're just rearranging the furniture before you know it. So I've been told by folks who are a little bit further on up the road that you find that most of the interesting choices are behind you and ahead. <laughs> well, that's just consequences. With all those life choices stacked up, you still haven't found 
this mythical place called blessed. And if that's your strategy for finding bliss, well, the psalmist says you are going to feel like chafe blown about by the wind. The danger of being rootless in our culture is that you actually need to connect your story to something bigger than yourself if you are going to find something capable of transforming your life. The alternative is to be like a tree whose roots are nourished by streams of living water. Now, in a sense, the Bible is actually a story bookended by an image of a tree that is fed by streams of water. The first two chapters of the Bible reveal God's intention for us and God's intention for all of creation. The refrain that sounds throughout this poem is that what God created is good. Uh, The word in Hebrew is tov, and it captures this sense of both good and beautiful. And the culmination of all that is Tov is this garden called Eden, this place that kind of defies imagination. The language is poetic and evocative, and it's as much a description about a kind of relationship with God as it is about a place. And and within this place of goodness and beauty, it's fed by rivers that run through it. We're given all sorts of other descriptions of what this is about. It's a place where meaningful work is given, where humans partner with God in the cultivation of the garden where the the place experiences the deep presence of shalom, this deep sense of peace and goodness where all things are as they are meant to be. And then we're told in the garden that there are many trees, but two in particular, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so one way of seeing the central drama of human existence, the the drama that Scripture tells about what it means to be human, is a choice between these two trees. The choice between seeing life as a gift of the Creator, rooted in the life of the Creator, and the choice of seeing life as something that we construct on our own and decide what is good for us. And maybe the greatest power of the story isn't just that it happened, but that it happens. That is still the choice. Well, as the story goes, they did not choose life. They chose to construct a life on their own, and that's how the story begins, and that's how often our stories go and why our stories are filled with heartbreak. Well then, at the end of the Bible, there's the book of Revelation, which is not the end of the story in the sense of like, you know, fade to black, cue the music, roll the credits, but the end in the sense of the thing that captures where the story is heading. And the last two chapters of this story, God says, I am making all things new. The end of the story, the purpose of the story is that God is making new the heavens and the earth, this new reality. There's going to be a city like a garden where the rivers are running through it. There is good and meaningful work for us partnering with God in making this garden-like city flourish all around us. And in the center of this new garden-like city, is the tree that we did not choose, the tree of life. 
whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. All of the strife and pain and loss, Afghanistan and Haiti and and sickness and poverty and strife, the world that is the way that it is because we have made it that way will all be made new. It will be reset and shalom will return. The reason that the scriptures begin and end with the tree of life, the reason that the psalmist says to be planted by a, a, like a tree by streams of living water is because the story that God is telling through Jesus is essentially about how to find life. Pastor and writer A.J. Sherrill puts it like this. He says, life is the theme of the entire Bible. Creation teems with life. Cain takes life. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, God gives commands in order that the people would choose life. In the Gospels, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those in the Son will be raised to everlasting life. God is in the business of life. The Scriptures begin and end with the tree of life. Don't miss the plot, the big story is life all the way from the beginning of the story to the end of the story there is a tree fed by streams of living water whose fruit is for the healing of the nations and so if that is how the story begins and that is how the story ends then we have to ask ourselves what does it mean for us to lay down our roots here in the present to be held up and linked to the roots of this tree so that we can bear fruit like a tree Travis Monk, Thomas Merton, wrote that you are shaped by the end of the story that you live for. I think sometimes when we feel stuck in the middle of the story, it's because we don't know how what we do now connects to the end of the story, to the purpose of the story that God is telling That somehow between the tree that appears at the beginning of the story and the tree that appears at the end of the story, our job is just to kind of like wait it out and, you know, run out the clock or what have you. A friend of mine used to have this uh, illustration that she would use uh, when she was, uh, you know, describing the Christian life. And she would bring on this rolling suitcase that she would kind of use as a, a prop in her talk, as kind of metaphor for the Christian life. And she, as she would wheel it kind of dramatically across the stage, she would say, Remember, friends, this world is not our home. We are just passing through on the way to our destination. And her point was that our faith gives us the resources. When, when pain, when storms hit, that we can wait patiently and hopefully for God to take us out and bring us to our eternal destination. Now, I believe that God is at work renewing all things, that somehow Jesus is just rewriting our story and, and, and he is somehow repairing and restoring all of the broken things into something hopeful, something beautiful. But, but waiting and hoping? Like, like, is that it? Just, just hanging around in the lobby with our suitcase for some future, something to happen, something great, and then we just, we just wait in the meantime for that thing to happen before we get to move on? I mean, a suitcase is what you pack when you're going on a vacation, as in you're going to leave. 
And this idea has gotten into so much of the way that we talk about salvation is that, that God's rescue is all about, you know, pulling us out of the world and transporting us to someplace else. But that's actually not the story that the Bible tells. Jesus is always sending his disciples into the world to participate in his mission of making all things new. And the, the best part of the story is that the word that was with God, the word that was God, became flesh and dwelled among us. And the part of the story about how that, that one who came to be with us went to the cross to take on our sins and rose to make us new. And he ascended to reign over his kingdom that was coming here. And then how the Holy Spirit grafts us into that root system, into the beloved relationship with the Father so that we are the beloved of the Father as well, that we might find our life in Jesus, that his story, that his identity, that his mission will become your story, your identity, and your mission as well. I mean, what if it is not about vacation, but it is about vocation? What if it's about what God wants to do in and through you to partner with him in making all things new? That story is at the end. It isn't about our leaving and going to heaven. If it's about God coming to be present with us and bringing this garden city into the world to be a people who in every corner that they are in in their world join in his mission to the world. And if we are shaped by the end that we live for, we need to know that the end that God is calling us toward is the one in which he is renewing all things. That he is bringing flourishing to all things. And it's not something that happens in some far off place called the future. It happens here and now. God wants a church to partner with him in making all things new again. The work that we do, the, the way that we worship, every time we gather to worship is about getting those roots in us, intertwining those roots so that our story gets linked up in his and, and that we are connected to the stream of living water, connected to its life and its story. This is what our worship needs to do. This is what our, our community groups are all about. This is what our liturgy prepares us for. The word liturgy, it actually comes from two Greek words, laos meaning people and ergon meaning work. Public work. One of my mentors, Craig Barnes, notes that before words like liturgy were given any sort of religious significance, they had a common meaning in the culture. They, the liturgy described people who made public roads or who were performing civic duties or works of charity. All these things were called liturgia. That was work that was done for the sake of the public. And so when the surrounding culture heard the earliest Christians refer to their worship as liturgy, well, they knew that they were worshiping God to be shaped for the common good. Incidentally, the, the Greeks had another word for private religious celebration. That word is orgia. Want to take a guess what we've done with that word? 
But I think it's also a pretty good description of what it looks like when worship gets turned inward. And the thing that keeps our worship from turning inward is that it renews us by planting us firmly in Jesus, in his story, in his mission, in his identity, and allows us to grow together to hold each other up and remind each other who we are and what we are about. Being planted by this stream, we are brought into a story that started way before us and it points us toward the end of the story. It gives us life and vitality and allows us to bear fruit. And the thing about that is the fruit, it's not for the tree, right? No, the, the fruit is for others. It's for the healing of the nations. We are called to more than simply gathering to worship like people who are waiting around and white-knuckling it until we get to go somewhere else. We worship to encounter the living God, to set down roots strong in a place with a people nourished by the one who brings streams of living water so that we can find our life and our story rooted in God's mission to renew all things. That is what happens when we draw into the source of living water. It begins to change everything. So as we think about what it means to be rooted, that's kind of the idea around which our congregational vision frame was developed, rooted in Christ, rooted in this place, rooted in each other. I'm going to kind of land the plane by walking through super fast what these words on a page mean and how they shape us to step into this story. And this vision frame is a way of kind of looking out together to provide clarity about what is God is doing in and through us. And it consists of four parts. And the first part is mission. It asks the question of why we exist as a community. What are we doing in response to God's leading we are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. That's who we are. We believe that when Jesus prayed to the Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was calling us to be a people committed to the flourishing of the kingdom here and now. And it is something that we practice, not perfect. Well, from their values, get at the question of what characterizes all souls as a community of disciples. What is the, the kind of the heartbeat of who we are as a people? And that's that we are rooted in scripture, rooted in community, rooted in practice, and rooted in hope. Like the giant sequoia trees, these are the things that allow us to draw deep. These are the things that allow us to be held up together in the midst of all of the cultural currents and cross pressures that might uproot us. These are the things that hold us to Christ. So then how does that translate into who we become if we are faithful to this mission? How do we live into and lift up the story of how God is moving in us to renew all things here and now? And we do that by becoming a community of grace in a culture of judgment, a community of rest 
in a culture of exhaustion, a community marked by engagement in a culture of distraction, a community of contribution in a culture of consumption, and a community of reconciliation in a culture of division. That is the fruit that we bear as a hopeful sign for the healing of the nations. If God is doing that in us, it is a sign of what he longs for for the whole world. And the last thing that brings us to the question of strategy, how is God doing this through us? Well, the pathway that God has led the church throughout the years is by gathering the community together to abide with him, to be with Jesus, to build the community up, to become like Jesus, and then send the community out to be his presence in the world, bringing renewal through ordinary acts of love and justice and mercy in the places where we work and we live and where we spend our time. Together, these four elements are kind of the frame through which we look out and ask the question of where God is taking us in this next season of our life together. Super fast, I know. Um, I don't expect there's not a quiz uh, about this stuff. Um, this is what we're going to be exploring together over the next several weeks as we follow Jesus in this season together. I know, it's 30,000-foot view. Don't, uh, don't panic. Now, I'm excited to see what God is going to do in response to all of the prayer and thought and the wrestling that went into these words, but I am far more invested in what God is going to do in you and in this community. I'm way more interested in how God is going to draw us into the story that he is telling. There's this ancient rabbinic saying that a person's good deeds are used by God as seeds to plant the trees of Eden. That as we begin to root ourselves in Jesus, in this community, in this place, in this time, that we will see the seeds of paradise take root. And so, may we trust that Jesus is right when he says that we're not going to find our life by pulling up our roots and constructing a life on our own, but that we're going to find our life by joining our story in the story that he is telling, like a tree with deep roots planting ourselves in him. May we trust that death is taken care of, that sin and brokenness and pain and sorrow has come to an end in Jesus, so we can partner with him in renewing this broken and hurting world, that through our work and our worship, we get to cultivate the garden-like city in our midst and join God in the process. May we become the kind of community that when we live this way, the very seeds of paradise take root. Amen. And now as we come to this table that Jesus has said, we come as guests invited, we come as a shadow and a foretaste of that feast in the heavenly city when all things will be made new, when we gather around the seat of the throne of the Lamb and worship Him together. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up our hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Amen.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Take all of you and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out saying, this is my blood shed in the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. So friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. We're going to take communion today uh, in a couple of ways. There are elements in the back of the room if you'd prefer, but we're going to invite you to come down the center aisle and receive the elements together. And so friends, know that as we come, we come as guests invited. Come, the table is set. All has been made ready. Amen.